client saying, show me your data sets. Just like, like, you know, there's some enormous contractors in the US. I'd just be like, you've got an entire division dedicated to oil and gas. Literally, I want to see the data set for the last 200 projects you delivered. I just want the raw, and I'm going to evaluate that. And like that level of transparency and Hi everyone, welcome to the Beyond Deadlines podcast, where we tackle challenges that planning and schedule leaders come across on a day-to-day basis. My name is Greg Lawton, and I'm the CEO of an AI schedule management company called Nodes and Links. My name is Micah Pipo, I'm a planning and scheduling manager for Intel. Each podcast is designed to give you strategies and tactics that you can implement right away. And today... We're going to have a bit of a random episode because Micro and I were having a discussion before this of just a bunch of stuff we're interested in. So we're going to kick off with a couple of topics and see how it lands. Okay, Micah, first topic, please. Let's dive into contracts, winning business, bids. I don't think we really cover all that much on the show and just anything interesting on your side of the fence that you're saying that people be interested to learn about. Well, I'm, I'm seeing a, um, first of all, I'll say the different kinds of winning business in the industry. So you've fundamentally in my eyes, you've got two kinds of people, the people who respond to bids and the people who don't bid. So, most often the claim management companies don't bid. You you go to them because your back's against the wall. So, you know, if you put out a tender, oh, can you please bid to provide claim? They're not going to respond. Um, and also the companies that provide a product. So there's some contractors that do the build all the way into operation and then sell the final asset. They don't bid. But I think, I can't think of another example in between. Everyone else bids and all of the bids are generally... Show me you have capabilities in sustainability. We have capabilities in sustainability. It's a repetition of the answer. But the thing that I think is really, really interesting that is possible right now, and I tried it with a couple of my friends just messing around in the company. Right now, it costs about 1% to 5% of the value of a project to bid it properly. So to sit there really? and do all of yeah, Yeah, yeah. 1% to 5%. Yeah, if if you're in defense, it can it can be like five to seven percent. If you're doing full, like you know, you're mocking up a fighter jet and this this kind of stuff. Oh, okay. I thought you're talking complex projects. Yeah. Well, I was thinking you're talking about putting together the piece of paper, the fake schedule and cost piece of it, and putting everyone's fancy faces on a presentation. <laughs> like, how does that cost five to seven percent? No, no. Percent? Like, yeah, that I'd be like, this is like big project, but yeah. you know. If you're bidding a consultancy job, you know, if you're doing a hundred million consultancy job, I'd expect you to spend two fifty to half a million on that, just in people's time minimum, maybe a million, that kind of thing. Um but the thing that I'm seeing here that's really interesting generative AI breaking that model. Right now, companies are constrained because it costs money to bid and people to bid so they can't bid on infinite things 
so they have to pick the things they bid on. And every senior manager I've seen that walks into some kind of senior job, one of their first things is we're going to become even more focused on what we bid on. Cool. How about the opposite where I just run my train an AI model on every single bid that we've ever won and lost, show it every single project that we've made money on and don't, and just have it write the initial bids for every single project that every client puts out across every continent this year. So I would I would go in and refine your model a little bit because I think there is a difference. If you start including some of the data sets you mentioned, there's a difference between winning the bid and then knowing how much money you'll make on the bid. Mm-hmm. To me, bids are still a little bit more... You know, the like the fluffy, jazzy stuff where you do the say it's sales pitch essentially, and you have some numbers to back it up. You just want to make sure your numbers are giving you a big enough margin that you're going to be successful. But I would also want that jazzy sales pitch, and then I probably wouldn't be revealing my numbers all that much. I don't know. Potentially, I just I just think it's um, it. It's a super interesting time because the the limits of capacity and the, the limits of cost that once existed in uh, professional labor are starting to fall away. So, you know, we've talked on other episodes about, you know, productization and automation and scheduling. We're generalizing it to project management and bidding here. Yeah, I'd I'd be I'd be looking at this. There's actually um, a venture cap, a venture capitalist I know recently actually put something like ten million into a company that automates bidding for I forget which industry. Um, it's not projects, but it's something. It's something else, and and you know they're making a lot of money writing. But like companies are just like there's twenty grand where it'd cost them two hundred, and they're just writing the entire bid, submitting, and then. If it gets to the advanced stage, then they're calling them up and going, okay, you probably need to come in and have a look at this and put some financial models together. But the company Folks, doesn't even have to get engaged until it's later on. If anyone listening takes this idea and creates it, Greg and I will happily take 1% for giving you the idea. <laughs> <laughs> if anyone takes this and, and creates it, I'd happily introduce them to the venture capitalists who give them 20 million for it. <laughs> I, I can't. I, well, I have a couple. I, I know a couple, but I will take the 1% and help you along. Well, let's flip this around then. If hypothetically we snap our fingers and everyone starts doing these Gen AI bids, there's a lot of trash that still these mm-hmm. these models pump out. And then we're, they're still at the end of the day, while it's refined trash, in my opinion, the bids are still what we talked about earlier. They're not I mean, that's. I think bids are actually one of the core reasons why so many projects are late because they're bad forecasts to begin with. The owner's bringing oh, totally. a date that's probably not achievable, and then someone's going in and backward passing it and saying, "Yeah, we we can do this, and we can do it mm-hmm. for ten percent less than the other person in the room." How is owners? Do you see essentially tipping the scales on that and making these things? Because yeah, the worst thing that could probably happen is an owner just creates like an AI bid reviewer and we don't actually go anywhere. We just eliminate the people and keep the trash. You know, mm-hmm. how do we get that giant thing in the ocean that just picks up all the trash and cleans it out for us and maybe brings in a new process? 
I'd be so the the big thing big thing for me is if I was an owner now, and you're completely right. Like you end up in a you end up in a prisoner's dilemma there, where you know if one person uses AI and you don't, you're screwed. But if you use it, and then you just get to some kind of middle ground where AI is reviewing AI and all of this. It's just a um, weird post-apocalyptic. What are we doing? Yes. <laughs> and then we come full circle to people writing bids and us reviewing bids. <laughs> Nothing's changed. Um, I um, I think what's what could be really interesting there is just clients, clients saying, "Show me your data sets." Just like, like you know. There's some enormous contractors in the US. I'd just be like, you've got an entire division dedicated to oil and gas. Literally, I want to see the data set for the last 200 projects you delivered. I just want the raw, and I'm going to evaluate that. And like that level of transparency and, Ooh, and you know, yeah. honesty. And, you know, it's the equivalent of going to a, a surgeon and going, I want to see your stats. How many people have you killed? What? I mean, it's <laughs> staying in um staying in uh in industry it's similar to asking for their financial health you ask yeah. for their credit score and have they defaulted on any projects and that's super interesting where you would just say i want to see the schedules and the cost data um and then evaluate those and then essentially you could not even know anything about the project but like we've talked a lot about before where you started and then where you finished tells me enough of what I'm probably going to get over 200 projects. Do you know, do you know what I find really interesting? So, um, my co-founder, Christos, he's a, he's a professor in complexity science. He's basically modeling, uh, projects and he's done a lot of work with in the insurance industry. He's, he's written a lot of papers for the insurance industry and models. And, what what I found shocking was that project insurance, um, it's not based on any kind of project performance. The insurance the insurance companies don't actually care about project performance. It's based off balance sheet. So there's something yeah. there's something called a surety. Um, at least in Europe, I don't know in America. You could tell me about America, but basically they'll just come in and and. You know, they'll say, can your balance sheet take the hit if we come in and just take all of this money out of your bank account because you fail and et cetera. And that's the check they do. They don't look at how likely that is. They don't, you know, care about generally any incentives. Uh, and, and I'm talking here about the um, the contractual insurance. There's, there's things below that, like safety insurance, et cetera, and whether, yeah. but big yeah. contracts. I just find it. Imagine that. Well, this is the equivalent of like driving your car, and they're just like, "We'll provide you insurance, but you just have to show us you got a hundred grand in your bank account." I don't really care yeah. if you're a good driver or not, or you've claimed or not. Like you've killed a couple of. I don't really care. Um, just make sure you have money there, so if you crash, we can take it. I'm not really like, sure with wow. you in the in the murder analogies today. Are you doing okay, Greg? <laughs> yeah. Do we need to do we need to talk about anything? Oh my, I'm a bit tired. Do you need today. to go? Do you need to go hit the gym or something? That's getting. I think that's the second mm -hmm. one in the last couple of minutes. Um, Let's see if I can get third out. Yeah. No, I think that that's, that's super interesting. And I think we're going to see a lot of changes coming in the future. Uh, it, uh, to me, I'm wondering 
just thinking of not so much on the owner side, but on the GC side, you know, you're going to have a lot of smaller, medium and bigger players. And then the subcontractor side as well, too. And I just know from the past, the bigger players, it's harder to move. They're more bureaucratic. Things mm -hmm. take longer to transition. So to me, I'm wondering how this is going to play out and who's really going to adopt these technologies fastest to then and find value out of them too. So it should be, it should be interesting. All right, let's switch, let's switch gears up a little bit, a little bit. We had an interesting conversation with Trag um, the other day, our, our in-house, not in-house, but our, our good buddy, who's one of the top recruiters in the industry. He brought up some interesting topics. And one of them was he was talking about um, the different roles of uh, project managers mm -hmm. and how if you are a doctor going into a niche and finding a specialty actually gets you paid more money. And so my thought process is we talked a little bit about project controls, but what are all these different project management roles out there, technical, non-technical, that people could potentially mm -hmm. be investigating? I, I think I think that's a, a super interesting thing, and you know, one of the one of the people that Micro and I follow and really really like. One of the saying is the riches are in the niches, which for if I'll say it again, but in proper English, the riches are in the niches. Um, there there is. By the way, I'll I'll just caveat that on like overall in general, as you go more niche, you the the supply is less therefore the opportunity for supply to demand to be offset is much higher but there's also volatility so yeah. you know if you are the most niche doctor in the world you might be able to charge a million bucks but you might only get a patient every 10 years kind of thing but on this i was actually talking with um surprise you uh, didn't mention killing someone All right, good for you <laughs> i'm i'm trying to i'm trying to lighten my mood I was talking with uh, a friend, a friend of mine, the other day, and he's um, so he's a venture capitalist out in Silicon Valley, and he's actually just retired a fund. I think his fund was like a billion or two billion or something like that. And now what he's done is launched an initiative to pull low TRL, which is technology readiness level uh, projects, through the valley of death into being operationally ready. I think it's a couple of hundred million or half a billion, something like that, the, the, the project. And I was talking to him about this. And long story short, he, he, he wrote a job description that was kind of, you must be able to do project management and general project management. And I was like, wait a minute. In my experience, there's a very big difference between a project manager who specializes in in managing and minimizing technical risk, which are things like people who work at Kinetic, like people where or people that work in fusion tech. So my brother works in fusion tech right now. There's no fusion reactor that's running and operational and generating electricity for money in the world, to my knowledge. So it's like it's unproven technology. So you're just trying to get through milestones. The second one is commercial risk, where you're just outsourcing and managing a massive supply chain. That's very much government organizations. And the third one is operational risk where your company is actually doing the doing and you're liaising with people and trying to you know understand uh, sh 
scheduling and profiling and shift patterns yeah. and all of that. I would and say, I say that's, that those that's three the, are very different yeah. beasts. Yeah, and the third one is the one I have the most familiarity about. And even that tree has a zillion branches in it. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can be a project manager of commissioning. You can be a project manager of this electrical system. You can be a project manager of H. I mean, the specialty even within that third branch is endless. You know, um, and so to me, uh, super interesting. Tell me a little bit more about the first two, though, because that's the one I'm a little less experienced in. Well, the first two, the first one. So I come from defense, and uh, you know, the first one is very, very common in defense. It's like imagine, imagine some professor at some university goes, "Oh, if I if I plug these infinity stones into this gauntlet, I can snap and you know." Great butterflies around the universe. You're like, oh, sounds man. good. You could have took that a different way, but I love. I could have done, but I didn't. I pivoted. <laughs> but like, you're looking there and you're going, "All right, well, I don't know if this is true or not. I don't know if this tech will work or not. But we need to prove it out through the milestones. So, so we need to develop some kind of proof of concept. But if the proof of yeah. concept is like a good twenty million, you're going to want some yeah. project managing that. So it'd be like, right, yeah. how am I going to corral? the engineering of the build of the first concept within the scope and budget of this to get to a milestone where I can produce a report saying, or the engineers can produce a report, this is doable. Yeah. And then it might go on to a next stage, or if you've done enough of those, it might go into scale. So if they're like, normally there's kind of three stages, it's this technology works, then they'll actually do a proof of concept of, and it can be manufactured repeatedly because you can't just go from a proof of concept to suddenly let's produce 50 of them. You'd be like, well, yeah. how, what molds do we need to make? And what, where do we get them made and all of this kind of stuff? And then, you know, once you've made 50, you might be like, okay, well, let's make 5,000. And there's a, that's yeah. a different thing. Interesting. So that's really that fusion. Oh, yeah, sorry. Oh, the second bit. And then I want to talk about fusion reactors because they got me, you got me interested. Well, do you want to know about fusion reactors? <laughs> Well, let's go. Let's go. What's the second? Was the set you said a risk commercial? No, the second. The second big one is um is like government organization, which is really subcontracting. So where the prod like where you're running a very light PMO model, where you're essentially defining output and outcome criteria and just contracting massive organizations to do it, you you might have elements of um. GF government furnished equipment, so GFE or contractor furnished equipment that you're passing and you have to manage and you might have interfaces between contractors. But in, yeah. in reality, like the big, big risk that you're dealing with is contract risk. Gotcha. No. So fusion reactors came up in my mind because I got a little bit of a tangent here. An Uber driver gave me a ride home last night from my wife and I went out uh, to 90s dance club which was a big stretch for us because we have three kids and we don't actually take many ubers anymore so both of us were very confused about how to do this and we had done it in years but anyways this fine gentleman told me these wonderful stories about how uh, he only drives at night and uh, you know just why do you only drive at night i'm thinking he had previously done maybe like a night shift or something and it falls in his schedule but He's had a couple stories where he's really helped people out in need at night, you know, not just the, you know, drunk guy falling, gal, you know, falling out of the car, but actually help people out. And what he said was, is, is like, if he can keep doing this and helping people out, it really brings joy to his life. 
Mm-hmm. I thought that was super interesting. And the reason why I brought up fusion reactors is because on many times the project you work on and what you're doing and what that project enables, it really creates extra passion for your role and keeps you engaged, especially when times get tough on projects. So my question is, what projects interest you in the future? These can be real, hypothetical, that you would find inspiring mm. that you see coming up. That's a really, really good question. Um, for me, I like the equivalent of modern day cathedrals. So back in the you know, 12th century, 15th century, etc., people would regularly engage in projects where it would extend beyond their lifetime and their children and their grandchildren would see the fruit of it. Things like fusion reactions or fusion reactors are that kind of tech to me. So I, I yeah. think like working on a project which is a moonshot that would revolutionize the lives of the entire of humanity. Um, like the, the modern ones where you, you will see the finish of them, things like Neom in Saudi. I, I, I just love the concept of that because it's, it's rethink all cities of since the dawn of humanity to have been built up organically. There's yeah. very few cities in the world where they've gone, this will be the city and it will never change. Yeah. But that's one where they're like, no, we're, we're literally building, what is it? A kilometer vertical and 20 kilometers long or something. Yeah. It's just a rethink of what an entire city is. Yeah. I think it was like, I remember hearing the history of any, any city, but you go back and these were not planned. And so some of these oh. cities like San Francisco don't have enough water or are in earthquake zones or there's all these different things that basically because it was a nice port and a good trade zone and some people move there and gold hit, boom, you have a major city. But it's not saying that that's the ideal place for one. C- cities are super interesting to me and some of those bigger. There's a couple smaller ones that are popping up. You mentioned moonshots. I mean, there's loads of projects. Do those interest you? The the, the moons, like we're going to go develop the moon or put Matt Damon oh, on Mars? That's, I absolutely love that. Do you know, like, I would love to be involved in those. But the problem is I'm not Chinese or American. Or, in, or, or actually Indian at the moment. Like, those are, those are kind of... Those are the big space powers that are coming up, and and yeah. there's a lot of constraints on nationalities working on those things. So, like, you can't work at at SpaceX unless you're American. That's the yeah. thing. And I'm like, I totally understand it because <laughs> you know, one person's rocket is another person's missile. Yeah, yeah, good point. But you know, those are the one. Like, I think I think anything where we're pushing the bounds of what humanity has achieved and what it can achieve. I think those are the really super interesting ones to me. Yeah. There are other ones that I know a lot of my friends get really passionate about. So like current infrastructure that just makes people's days and lives better. So like I've got a bunch of friends working on a children's hospital over in Ireland. I'm like, that's actually a really cool one. Really cool. It's just, you know, my passion is more out there more big what about yours yeah i i think all the uh the ones we've named have been super interesting i'm a huge fan boy obviously of large infrastructure it's why i work at intel and being able to influence on a global scale 
everyone's lives. I mean, what we created Intel is going to go into everyone's computers mm -hmm. and data centers. So it's, I mean, it's crazy to think about. That's like billions of people that you just uh, impacted their lives. And so I think the advanced manufacturing space, and we're going to go actually, on a wild us, ride in the next couple that, years. A bunch of our listeners, a bunch of our listeners won't actually know what you're doing at Intel. They'll just go, Intel's yeah. cool. That's a cool company. What is Intel actually doing with chips? Yeah, well, we're making loads of them. And so to build chips, you need these large, complex facilities to then create them. And what we need out there today is just more of them to keep up with the global demand. And so it's a massive construction undertaking. I mean, if you just check the news, you know, there's the um, several facilities that have kicked off around the globe. And I mean, it's just exciting. So it's the well, it's, I, yeah, it's I owner's saw... role, soup to soup to like all the way through, beginning to end. You know, you get to do. There's just so many different aspects and roles you can work on. Yeah. I I read. Um, I think it was. It, I think it was part of the U.S. Gov website. I read that like the the U.S. as in the government's commitment to chip building. I think they put something like a hundred billion behind it or something. And that, that's, yeah, that's like, if you think about it, that's a chips crazy act. number. Yeah, well, there, that's the other thing that's helping to drive this is just moving domestic, moving you know international supply into you know into domestic producers. That way, you have less risk, and mm -hmm. countries not only like America but other countries are taking that up as well. I saw an article the other day that India uh, plans to get into it. I mean, they have a lot of pharmaceutical uh, companies in there. And they want to use that knowledge of building pharmaceutical facilities to get into that advanced manufacturing. So I mean, we'll see a, a big growth in that industry, uh, I, th I believe, over the next couple of years, if the news is correct. And uh, i just fortunate that I work at a place that, that is doing it. Totally. Actually, you've just said something. I just put two and two together in my, my head. So um, here's a little fact that no one will probably know. Um, most countries make their own bullets. Uh-oh. Here we go yeah. again. Yeah. Great well, staying on theme for this that, episode. There's a, there's a, there's a, it's, it's regarded as a sovereign capability for most countries because if you can't make your own bullets, how are you going to defend yourself if someone in, invades? And it's generally a commoditized item. Like it's, yeah. it's a bunch of metal and a bunch of powder and you can put them together. Um, you could have massive economies of scale by outsourcing it to one country, but then you see the problem. And actually, this is happening with chip manufacturing now because the entire yep. world runs on computers and the internet. Different countries are wanting chip manufacturing happening inside their country. So America, Britain, etc. The same thing with artificial intelligence hosting, so the big data centers. Yep. And the same thing with internet hosting. So actually, I went to Corn Cornwall, which is on the south coast of England, and you can actually see the underwater internet cables come inshore into the big, these things, enormous, enormous. Those things. are really the, cool. Those are really cool projects. Yeah. Crazy. Like countries basically want internet nodes in their country because then they control the internet in their country. So you could probably guess which countries have nodes. Uh, yeah. Well, I got to work on a couple of Google. The internet. I got to work on a couple of them at Google and... I was just a, a moron. I didn't realize that 
there's actually cables running underneath the ocean from one point to the other that provide the internet. And I just one day I was like, wow, didn't know that existed. Where do they go on shore in America? And in, in the UK, yeah. it's Cornwall. There are loads of in America. places. But you have, uh, there's a big one that drops in at New York. Um, there's a couple uh, spatterings on the West Coast. I think it's, I want to say LA, but you can go look up a map. Maybe I'll try and find one in the show notes. There's literally maps of these things that show um, where they all go. It's, it's, it's a little it's off way project. More, it's way more than you'd ever thought. It's a, it's a little off project, but that's it's more manufacturing. But imagine being given the task. Hey, and by the way, these cables are like a good two or three meters in diameter. Imagine being the, given the task. Hey, so we want to lay a, lay a cable. Okay, cool. Where from? From London <laughs> to New York. I'm like, all right, well, that's like 3,000 miles or something. Be like, yeah, 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 under the ocean. Okay. And we want to do it over, you know, the ridge that's pulling apart. So there's vol- volcanoes and stuff. I'm like, yeah. cool. Um, please build me that cable. Like, I'd be like, what? Yeah. How much How much rubber? I don't know if they're made of rubber. I have no idea. I know. I forget, but they're definitely strong. Yeah. And then I'd be like, well, I saw this video of a guy who kayaked it once. Does that help? <laughs> <laughs> Coin full circle. Um, I can write the bid. We will provide you a cable that's made of unobtainium. Chat GPT. How do I write a bid for an undersea cable? <laughs> I think. All I right. think like we're we're in the best place now in the world of projects to do exciting stuff. Like I've had I've had a, I've had a couple of friends that have actually just moved to Saudi because Saudi. I think Saudi have. I think they have the most billion dollar projects per like capita of person or something like that. Yeah. Like, America's America's got the most big projects, but there's 300 million people in America. But I think like you've got yeah. Neom, Red Sea, Oxagon, Sindala, you've got a whole host. I think now's like the time you can kind of pick the cool projects that you want to work on. And if you're in America, yeah. I'd go to space. I'd be 100% doing space projects or chip fabs. I like my I like my feet on the ground. <laughs> well, live a little. Yeah. You went yeah. dancing last night. Push it out even more. Yeah. Well, my feet are sore now because I'm old. <laughs> Anybody got any recommendations that aren't Skechers for shoes uh, for people with old feet? Let me know. You know, put it in the put it in the comments. <laughs> All right, Greg, we should wrap this one up. We should. Okay. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Tell us if you like this kind of format and what you'd like us to discuss in the world of projects. Of course, if you're loving it, Mike and I do this on a Sunday for the fun of it. Um, it helps if you share it with a friend or a colleague you think might find it interesting. And yeah, uh, thank you for watching. Have a wonderful week. And we'll see you next time.